0: Well, last time together we did indeed read through chapter 18 in our study. Paul had finished his second missionary journey. Paul had begun his third missionary journey in chapter 18. But at the end of chapter 18, and I want to be reminding us by way of going back to this section, starting with verse 24, Luke introduces to us a man named Apollos. Now, Apollos was a Jew. He was an intellectual, very, very brilliant man, by all accounts given in the Word of God. But it tells us in verse 24 of chapter 18 this about Apollos. It says there, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla had heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, He greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Apollos had come on the scene in Ephesus, and our previous study shows us that in Paul's ending of his second missionary journey, he went from Achaia, the city of Corinth, after having spent 18 months there teaching and proclaiming the Word of God, traveling back toward his home in Syria, in Antioch of Syria. But before he got to Syria, he made a trip to the city of Ephesus, and he was with Aquila and Priscilla, whom he had met in Corinth, and they all together went from Corinth to Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla stayed in Ephesus, and then Paul went from there to finally getting down into the territory of Israel now, in in the city known then as Caesarea, and then moving on from Caesarea to Jerusalem because Paul had wanted to get to Jerusalem by the time of the feast, and he apparently was successful in doing so. And after having spent some time with the disciples there in Jerusalem, he went back then to his home church where he began that second missionary journey in Antioch of Assyria. So that's that second missionary journey that did bring him to Ephesus. But you may remember that on his beginning of the second missionary journey, he went through the territory of Galatia. And in that, which was known then under the Roman Empire as the territory of Asia, he had stopped at various cities along the way. And on his way from there, westward, he wanted to go north to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit didn't let him go. So he decided, well... If I'm not going north, I'm going to go south down to Ephesus. But the Lord would not let him go to Ephesus either. So at that time, he went westward still to Troas and then crossing the sea over to Philippi and began his missionary work in the territory of what is now Western society, Europe, now known as Greece, Macedonia, Achaia. Those are the places he spent much time in, and he's now already in this story, back in Antioch. But Apollos had been proclaiming the Word of God as much as he knew of it. But he was so eloquent in his presentation. It caught the attention of Quilla and Priscilla, who had traveled to Ephesus with Paul. And they took Apollos under their wing, if you will, and they taught him more perfectly with a better understanding of the complete work of Christ on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer, perhaps, but we're not told that specifically. But he was given more information than he had, which made him a better proclaimer of the truth of God's Word. And while in Ephesus, he decided he wanted to go back to Corinth. And so receiving the blessing of the church, he did go from Ephesus back westward to Corinth, and we're not sure whether Aquila and Priscilla followed after him. We do know only this about Aquila and Priscilla. They were known to be travelers. They went from Rome originally to Corinth, to Ephesus. They were back in Corinth at a later date. They were back in Rome at a different time, all according to the Book of Acts. So they were very, very mobile, if you will, and it may be that they went with Apollos, although we're not really told from Ephesus back to Corinth. But while Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla were there, there was a church established. And that's why we found in chapter 18, those final verses, it sets the stage for Paul now returning back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Now, when he began his missionary journey, this third one, he went through the same area that he had gone in on his first or second rather missionary journey through the territory of Phrygia and Galatia and he did make the turn west or southward down to Ephesus from there instead of continuing on to Europe this time so this time on his third missionary journey he went part of the way that he had done on the second missionary journey but then diverted back southward to Ephesus he wanted to establish a work there It had already been established by Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself had not spent much time there in Ephesus. But before he had left previous to this, he had told the people of Ephesus that he had been ministering to, I'll be back. And so he did do exactly as he had told them. He returned to Ephesus. And we're told in the Word of God here, in this portion that we'll be looking at in chapter 19, that he spent almost three years in Ephesus, longer than anywhere else in all of his missionary journeys. Again, Corinth, he stayed about 18 months. Most of the time he was kicked out within weeks of the city in which he had come. But this time and in Corinth, he was able to stay and minister to the people. And that ministry in Ephesus takes up almost the entire chapter of the book of Acts that we're in now, chapter 19, where it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So it tells me at this point in the story that these disciples, it tells us they were disciples. We know them to be believers because Paul asked did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They believed the gospel. Paul acknowledges that belief in the gospel, but it knows somehow, either by revelation of the Holy Spirit or by communicating some thoughts with them, that they didn't have a complete understanding, just like Apollos didn't. Now, these may have been converts of Apollos, we're not told. But whoever they are, they did not have a complete understanding as was the case with Apollos. So Paul asks a simple question. Have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, some of your translations may say, since you believed. And either translation is valid, by the way. In the original Greek language, uh, there is no real distinction between the word when, as it is in English, and since. And there, unfortunately, had been a lot of denominational issues that resulted from the translation that one denomination might use versus another. Some denominations believe that it was intended by Paul to imply that they should have received the Holy Spirit when they believed, and if they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, if they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, then they must not be Christians. I think that's wrong. I think Paul indicates very clearly that they did believe. The point is, they hadn't received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want to stop and kind of reflect on that because it's so very, very important, because some of the church thinks differently than the way we teach within the Calvary Chapel circles. Unlike the Baptists, we believe in what is known as the filling of the Holy Spirit, a subsequent to the receiving of salvation. It's not just Baptists, there are several. I shouldn't pick up I'm just the Baptist, but sometimes we have to make distinctions. This is what we believe, and denominations like Baptists and several others don't believe as we teach and believe in Calvary Chapel. It's not an issue in terms of our relationship with Jesus. It's not a matter of misrepresenting God by setting up doctrines around certain portions of Scripture as long as it doesn't conflict with the basic tenets of our faith. So we have a lot of very, very wonderful people in those other denominations who love the Lord sincerely, who are truly born again. But they have a different opinion about the work of the Holy Spirit than we do. So we're in that sense different than say the baptists because we believe in a second outpouring of the holy spirit known as the baptism of the holy spirit and they don't accept that in most cases however on the other hand we're not exactly like most pentecostal churches who believe that you must receive the holy spirit in order to be saved that's unfortunate that they would make that kind of an argument because it does not have scriptural basis at all yes the holy spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. That was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. The Holy Spirit came down on the believers on that day. And He filled them, and they spoke in tongues. That's a phrase that a lot of people don't want to even consider either. Speaking in tongues is an issue in a lot of different places. I don't want it to be an issue here. I want us to think clearly about what it is exactly that the Holy Spirit has been doing and is doing in the churches today, as well as what he did in the churches in that first century church. But keep in mind that that's where it began on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon them over and over again. We see a distinction in the Scriptures with regard to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is said to, in some cases, be with you. Jesus had said that to his disciples in John 14, 15, 16, that the Holy Spirit would come, he's a comforter, and he will be with you. He will come alongside you. And the word with you in the original Greek is para, and it means to come alongside, like a parallel, if you will. But he also says in the word of God that the Holy Spirit is in you and will be in you, When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to depart, he told his disciples that very fact. The Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. The word in is very much like our English word in the Greek. It's en, if you will, instead of in. And it means within. Something has taken place that allows the Holy Spirit to dwell within the believer. Now, the word of God is very, very clear that you receive the Holy Spirit in you, When you become born again, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you receive the salvation that has been offered, the Spirit of God regenerates you. He comes and dwells in you. Over and over again, you can see verses of Scripture that refer to the fact that the Spirit is in you. And He comes in you at that moment of conversion. And He dwells in you. You are sealed with a seal of promise at that point of conversion. That's the Holy Spirit's work in you. So He's with you. He always has been with you. It's He who drew you to Christ in the first place. So He's always been with you in that sense that He's been doing what He always has been doing, convicting men everywhere of sin and righteousness and judgment. He is with you in the world. He was with the saints of Old Testament times. And He came upon Old Testament saints, but only on a handful of them throughout the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures. He came upon Old Testament saints, many of them. They didn't speak in tongues as far as we know, but many of them prophesied as an evidence of the Spirit coming upon them. And in the New Testament, that phrase, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, used by Jesus and by Paul and by Peter, Implies that he is not coming with you, not coming in you, but he is coming upon you. The Greek word is epi. It means to be coming from some place other than your being and sweeps over your soul in an empowering that comes from his coming upon you. That's the three distinct prepositional phrases that are used with regard to the Holy Spirit and we endorse such teaching is this, that the Holy Spirit can come upon you more than once in your Christian walk. Paul tells the Ephesian church, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. And the Greek language construct there is a continual filling. He says, be filled over and over and over again. It means the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit as it is translated elsewhere. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized by the Holy Spirit are synonymous terms. So we teach that the Spirit of God is active in the church today and the gifts of the Spirit are evident in the church as well. They've not been taken away. One group of denominations believe that the Spirit's work ended in the first century, after the canon of Scripture was written. I, I have no basis from the Scripture for any kind of statement like that. But on the other hand, I can't agree with the way the Pentecostal churches, for the most part, treat this baptism of the Holy Spirit or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the operation of the Spirit within the church. There are discrepancies. There are things that make them distinct from our church background, and we are distinct from theirs as a result of this. Are we still, all of us Christians? Most certainly. Friends, I was originally a believer way back in 1980, and the very first real good church I attended was an Assembly of God church, a Pentecostal church. And I loved it there. It was where God's Word was being taught. The pastor was a man of God who I just so deeply respected, and he taught the whole counsel of God, and he put that desire to teach the whole counsel of God into my heart. I have no problem with most of what the Assembly of God churches had been doing, especially during those years. There had been some deviations from the teachings that I knew to be sound doctrinal teachings within that organization. There have been some who have slipped away from that basic soundness and began to explore various off-the-wall kinds of experiences, like barking, the spirit laughter, and other strange phenomena. I don't count them as being valid. I don't count any doctrine that's valid that insists that you be baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. That can't happen. It happens to these 12 men in Ephesus. Paul does convey to them, well, this is what you're lacking. And he says in verse 3, first a question, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So that tells Paul they didn't quite have all of the teaching that they needed to have in order to receive the Holy Spirit. So then Paul said, Paul indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. That was true. John did do that, and it was very important. However, this is what he also said about John, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. So John was directing them to Jesus, but he didn't give them all the information they needed to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to become born again. Now apparently they were taught these things that Jesus was to come. It may be that they didn't know that he had already come, but irrespective of what they did know, they did not know about the Holy Spirit. And it tells us in verse 5, when they heard these things that Paul now has been telling them, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus instead of in John's baptism. They were baptized according to what Jesus had told his disciples. Jesus had sent His disciples, remember, before He ascended into heaven. And He said, I want you to go into all the world, starting in Jerusalem, then into Judea, then into Samaria, and then into all the world. And He wants His disciples to do this, to baptize believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' baptism. In His name it was done. And in verse 6 it tells us this, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So here we have the result of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on these twelve individuals. Paul baptized them in water. Water baptism is a means by which we can say we have identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no question in my mind, I hope there's none in yours, that Paul would not have proceeded with baptism in water unless he knew that they were truly born again. And when Paul speaks of being born again, and others in the New Testament, again, the Spirit of God is received, dwelling within us. He is a seal of promise that takes place at the moment of conversion. But here, now after having baptized in water, we're told that they were also baptized in the Holy Spirit. Why do we know this? Why do we say this? Because again in verse 6 it says the Holy Spirit came upon them. Not in, not with, but upon. A distinctive that we stand with in the Scriptures. That's what we teach. A second work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of a believer. And it can happen more than once. Peter was filled at the, by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 4 later, he was filled again. And the other events that took place in Peter and other disciples' ministry in their lives where the Spirit of God came upon them for service, for empowerment. And that's what I believe is the most important aspect of the Holy Spirit coming upon any believer. It's so that we, and as well as they, could have that power to represent Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who has done that empowerment by coming upon the believer. And the result in Ephesus was that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, that's not always been the case. Without doubt, there are differences in the way that the Lord Specifies these events and the sequence of them. There's no one sequence of events that is exactly proclaimed in the Word of God. Sometimes, always, salvation comes first. Then baptism in water, usually. But in the case of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert that Peter ministered to, what happened? Peter was proclaiming the Word of God. They believed, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Sequence. They believed, the Spirit of God came within. As believers in Christ, they now were born again. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues, just as Peter and all of the other disciples had done on the day of Pentecost. And then they were baptized in water. That sequence is reversed here. There's no particular sequence, arrangement of sequential events that you can pinpoint to say, this is how it must be done. If you try to do that, you're putting God in a box. And God doesn't like being in a box. God rather would be apt to say, let me out of this box. And let me be God and do what I want to do in your life. So if you're here today and you have put God in a box by saying, I don't really want anything to do with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I don't really want to know anything more about the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to speak in tongues. I don't want to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifest in any church that I'm a part of because I have always had this preconditioned idea about those sorts of things with some degree of Concern. You mean, if I am filled with the Holy Spirit, won't I lose control? I need to be in control of all of my mental capacity. And if I let the Spirit of God, how do I know it's not some other spirit, a demon, entering in and doing that? Friends, there are counterfeits. You know, our dollar bill is worth a dollar, obviously. Well, it was, but it's still called the dollar, and it's a currency, and it has value, and it is a real currency. It is designed in a way that identifies it as a true currency of the United States of America, but they are counterfeits of the dollar bill. They look like the dollar bill, but most people can't distinguish the difference between the counterfeit and the real. A professional can. That's what they look for. They look for deviations. And when they see the deviation, they know that that's a counterfeit. Well, friends, that applies in every situation where you have a real and a counterfeit. And by the way, Satan is alive and well, and he wants to present the counterfeit to anyone who will accept it. The counterfeits are out there. There's no question. Again, going back to my experience with the Assemblies of God, I believe that almost all of those things that I had experienced during that time that I was in that denomination were very much by the Spirit of God. I'm convinced of it, but I also saw some evidence of the flesh being involved. And you need to be careful. You need to be discerning. And by the way, if you think that Well, I don't really think it's a good idea for us to pursue these things called the gifts of the Spirit. Well, one of those gifts is a gift of discerning of spirits. And friends, I believe very strongly in this fact. We need discernment in these last days. So don't discount, don't exclude the moving of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ so He can do His work and move severally as He wills according to the Word of God. Does that mean I have to accept the idea that he might want me to be speaking in tongues? Maybe. Not all speak in tongues. Paul the Apostle made it very clear in the first book of Corinthians. He said, do all speak in tongues? And the expected answer is no. But he also said this, I praise my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. We don't know when Paul received the baptism of the Holy Spirit where he had the evidence of speaking in tongues, but he identifies that in his walk with Christ, somewhere along the way, he did receive this gift. He speaks of it very fondly. But he also says, in the church setting, I would rather speak 10,000 words in a known language than 100 words in tongues. In other words... Paul wanted to make sure that in the church that all the church was edified. The word edified just means that everybody was ministered to in a way that they could receive truth. Edification is a very, very important aspect of our being together as a church known as the body of Christ. And when things take place within the body, everything that is done, Paul says, must be done in good order. And it should be for the purpose of edifying the body. But he also says about speaking in tongues, and it's the only gift that this is mentioned in this regard, that speaking in tongues edifies the individual, not the body. It's for you. And I am convinced that it is so good because it's a gift from God. Why would God give you an inferior gift? And there are some people who treat the gift of tongues as though it were some kind of inferior gift. And I'm despicably, despicably, despicable thinking. I'm thinking that's despicable. There. That's despicable. I'm concerned about those who say that tongues are not a good gift. It would be their preference not to have any evidence of that gift. They're okay with some of the other gifts. Healing, yeah, that's acceptable. Gift of administration, oh yeah, we need that. Gift of helps, certainly. Those are all valid gifts of the Holy Spirit. But why exclude the other gifts, the miraculous gifts, just because you've heard somebody say that they're not for today? Friends, open your heart to this one truth. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And He loves to give good gifts unto His children. Jesus Himself said, You earthly fathers, if your child comes to you and asks for an egg, will you give him a stone? If he asks for bread, will you give him a scorpion? How much more, Jesus said, Will your Heavenly Father give to all who ask of His Spirit? Luke chapter 11. He wants to give of His Spirit if you just simply would ask. Now, friends, I submit to you that when you asked Jesus to come into your heart, to become your Lord, your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, you didn't ask, Give me the Holy Spirit. You didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit at that point. Perhaps you might have heard, but you didn't know anything more than that which maybe had been read to you. You hadn't known experientially anything about the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't have asked at the moment of conversion to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't in your vernacular at that point. What Jesus is saying is, once you are a believer, you can ask for the Spirit. And how much more will your Father give than your earthly Father in that regard? That's what Jesus was pointing to. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit that's available to all who simply by faith ask for it. And again, it doesn't necessitate that when you ask for it, you receive the gift of tongues. That's not what the Word of God says. Of the five instances in the book of Acts where some event took place that was observable. The majority of them were indeed, were the people who received the gift, received the gift of tongues. But it wasn't always that way. And in one case, we're not sure whether it was a gift of tongues or some other gift that was manifest. The case I'm thinking of is with regard to the Samaritan church. Philip had been in Samaria shortly after the risen Savior had manifest Himself to His disciples. The church was growing. They moved from Jerusalem. They moved out of Judea. They went into Samaria with the word of God. And Philip, not an apostle but a deacon, went into Samaria and proclaimed the word of truth, and many signs and wonders were done by him in Samaria. There was one man, Simon, who was a sorcerer, who had purportedly believed in Jesus Christ. And when all of the things that were going on in Samaria became known to the the church in Jerusalem, Peter and others with him went up to Samaria to see what was going on. And as they got there, they saw this wonderful ministry that Philip had had been involved in. And it was there that we find the Spirit of God coming upon the believers. No evidence as to what had happened. But something did. Something did because it caught Simon the sorcerer's attention. And it was so amazing to Simon the sorcerer that he went to Peter and said, Hey, I want to buy that gift so I can lay hands on people and and the Spirit will come upon them like, like he did with you. Remember the story. Peter said, your money perish with you. This is not something that can be bought. In any case, the point of this is we don't know what happened. We're not told that they spoke in tongues. We're not told that they prophesied. But something did happen. We had some evidence in the Word of God because Simon recognized something different, something new, and he wanted it. Everywhere else, with the exception of Paul's conversion, we don't know when Paul received the gift of the Holy Spirit. All we know that in the book of Acts, Ananias had come to him and prayed for him because God had told him to do so. And when he prayed, it tells us because Paul had been blinded by his encounter with Jesus, that scales fell off of his eyes. And he became a deliverer of the gospel of, mes- of the message of Jesus Christ at that point. Did he speak in tongues then? We're not told. But again, referring back to his own comments in First, first Corinthians, Paul says, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all." It's a good thing to be able to worship the Lord in language you haven't learned. I have received that gift. I'm so very happy that I have. I know others of you have as well, but I'm not saying you all have to speak in tongues. I'm just saying if you haven't inquired about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit through what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's time for you to say, Lord, I want more of you. I want more love. I want more power. I want more faith. I want more of your grace and mercy upon my life. I want more of your spirit in my life. The song we sang today, I want to praise you more. I want to serve you more. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. How can you do any of those unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to accomplish that? And yes, the Spirit is in you, but if you have a real desire to do more for Christ, to be more for Christ, then let the Spirit of God come upon you and empower you because that's what He desires to do. Friends, brothers and sisters, Church of God, these are the last days I'm convinced of that. And what I believe happened in the first century can and should happen in this 21st century. And I want to see the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in the churches. I don't want to see counterfeits. And we will stand against that which is not of God. There are things that Paul instructs us with regard to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the moving of the Holy Spirit in the church that we adhere to. We will not let things go out of hand and we will challenge anything that is done inappropriately or out of order because Paul insists that all things be done in order. So that's our stand. We're not like the Pentecostals in that regard. We're not like the Baptists and the Methodists in the other regard. The Nazarene Church teaches a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit a second work of the Holy Spirit. They're right in that regard, but they don't equate it to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So they're close, and I don't think we can say we've got it 100% accurate. I wish to say very, very frankly, we're not there. None of us are. None of us have it down perfectly. But I can tell you this, our position here at Calvary Chapel Church is is a balanced position that's based upon what the Word of God says, the entire Word of God. Remember, our focus is on what the Brian's focus was on, making sure that what has been told is in the book. And so that's what I challenge you with today. Study the Word of God to see if these things are so. And don't allow your preconceived ideas to interfere with the truth of God's Word. Don't allow previous teachings of what the Word of God says according to that teaching until you examine the Word of God and see for yourself. You can do that because the Spirit can indeed bring you to that place where you can know, you can trust His leading. He is the One who is our teacher, our guide. He is in you. You have the Holy Spirit if you were born again and you can do that By the power of the Holy Spirit, go to the Word of God, and before you start reading it, pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might see. Open my heart to receive truth, because your Word is truth. And Jesus said, it's truth that will set you free. Don't you want to be free? I do. I want to be liberated from the burden of sin, and He has done that through salvation And that alone through Christ's finished work on the cross. But there's more. For the church, there's so much more. And God wants to give us all that He would have us to receive. When Paul said, He gives exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do you think that doesn't mean what it says? Far more than what you want to ask of Him, He is willing to give because He's a loving God and a gracious God and He wants to pour out His blessing upon His people. I pray often, Lord, open a window in heaven and pour out a blessing I cannot contain. Isn't that a good prayer to pray? Is that something you've ever thought about praying? It should be. Pour out Your Spirit, Lord God, upon this church today. Let Your Spirit move among us in a way that will glorify the God in heaven because that is the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit within the body of Christ. Not to bring glory to the individual, but to glorify Jesus Christ, because it's the Spirit of God who points us to Him. If the Spirit of God points us in any other direction, it's not the Spirit of God, friends. But these are the things that Paul here is beginning to unfold for us in this wonderful book of Acts. He's telling these Ephesian believers, look, you're new in the faith, you've believed in Jesus Christ, but there's more. He gets them baptized in water once they have received the fullness of the promise of God in their lives. They've been born again, and He's confirmed that. Now He baptizes them in the water of baptism. And that's always a good way to go. Well, my friends, once you receive Jesus Christ, you receive that which He has given as proof of your salvation. We don't do many many baptisms in this time of the year because they're Ice is a little bit hard to get through. I know Pastor Ken Graves has done baptisms in frozen waters. I'm not one of those who would endorse that sort of thing. But we'd love to do baptisms. And if the Lord should tarry, we have a summer outing that is set for that particular purpose. It's in the summer because the water's warmer. It's not that warm, but it's warm enough. And I encourage, if you've not been baptized, be baptized in water. It's a confirmation, an affirmation rather, of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we call it believer's baptism. Oh, I was baptized as a child. They sprinkled water on me as a baby. I remember that clearly. Well, I don't remember that clearly, but if you do, that's fine. But that's not what the Word of God suggests. Immersion is the method by which the Lord has given for this particular event. And every believer should want to be baptized in water. Every believer should be baptized by the Spirit. Should want equally both. Of course, the Word of God says, well, there's one baptism, one Lord, one God in heaven. Yes, that's all true. The baptism that Paul is talking about in that passage is the conversion experience. You're baptized into faith in Jesus Christ but it's not through water baptism that he's speaking of these things it's not the baptism of the holy spirit where the holy spirit comes down upon the believer that's a different thing altogether that's the only place that you will find a reference to being baptized in that sense that you are baptized into faith baptizing simply means identifying that's all the word means it's used in the word of god a little bit more often than perhaps it ought to be. And it is sometimes confusing because of that. But again, it boils down to this. Study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you do so, you will not be ashamed. So moving on in verse 7, we see a continuation of the story in Ephesus. Now the men were about twelve in all, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. Now we don't know anything about this school. We don't know anything more about Tyrannus. But apparently it was close by the synagogue. And Paul is evidently able to use this man's building in which to teach the Word of God in the city of Ephesus. And he is likely renting this place, perhaps, or it may be that Tyrannus became a believer and opened this place up for them to gather together. It is a public building. It is a school building. Perhaps in the heat of the day, usually around 11 till about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, uh, workers would tend not to be working because of the heat in that particular environment. It gets well over 100 degrees in that territory where Ephesus once stood in the summertime. So in order for Paul to be able to teach, he had to work. So it's likely he continued his work as a tent maker in Ephesus, as he had done in Corinth, And that would have been done during the morning hours when it was not so hot. And then in the afternoon, he apparently was able to use the school of Tyrannus to minister to the saints of God in a public setting. Yes, there were church ministries in the homes of certain individuals. I don't discount that. That was a wonderful thing that was happening throughout the entire known world that they were meeting in homes, like the home of Aquila and Priscilla, and others like them. All over the entire Roman Empire, churches were being founded, and many of them were in homes. I like that idea. I think it's a good thing to perhaps, in these last days, and it may be necessary perhaps in these last days, for that to be the norm rather than public buildings like this. But don't rule out the fact that they also gathered together in public buildings because that's exactly what Paul was doing here. And he was there for almost three years. It tells us in verse 10, and this continued for two years, so he's been teaching for three years, uh, three months, and before that he was in the synagogues talking about the things of the Lord. So in all, it is assumed that Paul was in Ephesus for nearly three years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All who dwelt in Asia, not just Ephesus, but in Philadelphia, in Thyatira, in Smyrna. All of the seven churches recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, are churches of Asia. And I'm convinced that while Paul was in Ephesus, he was able to teach the Word of God to those who would there, from there go out into those other cities in Asia and begin to proclaim the Word of God and the Word of God spread into all of those cities. Ephesus was a founding church for many other churches throughout Asia. It's a very important church. It's a very needful church. It's a very... Powerful work of God in that church. What happened to Ephesus after Paul left? Well, they'll show up in this book of Acts on a few more occasions. But I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation with me. Chapter 2. In this portion of the book of Revelation, Jesus has given John instructions to write about seven churches in Asia that he has a message to give to each one of them. A unique, specific message that each one needed to hear. The very first of them is the church at Ephesus. Listen to what Jesus says through John in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel, or messenger, of the church of Ephesus write, These things say, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, that's a reference to Jesus Christ in his glory, I know your works, he says, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. These are good things. This is the church of Ephesus. They were doing great work. They were faithful to the things that God had commanded. They were adhering to the truths of God's word. They were representing Him, adhering to His grace and mercy, and proclaiming to those who would hear. They were doing a lot of work that was recognized by all those around them as being really, really wonderful things. Should not they be? commended by the Lord, and yes, to the certain extent that He has commended them here. But listen to what else Jesus says. Verse 3, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for My name's sake and have not become weary, nevertheless. That's the equivalent of but God. And this is not a good but God, friends. Nevertheless, Jesus, after all that which He has just commended them for, He says this, Nevertheless, I have this one thing, just this, against you. You're doing a lot of good things, a lot of right things, but this is what you need to understand. My friends, this is what we all need to understand. This is what the church at Ephesus had lost. But it wasn't because they couldn't find it. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The word, you have left, a phrase, you have left, is scary to me. It means that somehow in all of our doing good things for God, we miss the most important thing of all, love Love for one another, love for our enemies, love for God. That happened no more than 35 years after Paul was there at Ephesus, that Jesus wrote those words. How long will it be before he can make that same accusation against this body? Oh, we do good things. We serve one another. We gladly help one another in times of need. We love one another, don't we? We are so committed to ministering to one another as a body of Christ should. But have we lost anything by virtue of the fact that we left His love for us behind and our love for Him? People of God, don't let that happen. Don't let us be among those to whom Jesus must speak such words as this. One of the best ways that we can, I believe, avoid it is if we seek His Spirit's help daily. And if that means, Lord, give us a fresh outpouring of Your Holy Spirit so that we might not err, give us a fresh outpouring of Your Holy Spirit so that we might be good representatives of You in these last days, then let it be so. If you don't want that, then pray for me so that I can have your share. Because I want it. Hope you do too.